0: Testing, testing, testing. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to talk about earthquakes and meditation. (laughs) Because we had a really special meditation on Friday night. Because we were meditating when the earthquake hit. And it was really a -a once-in-a-lifetime situation. I told everybody how special it was, because it'll never happen again. You know, but to be in meditation for around 40 minutes before the earthquake struck. And then to see that nobody moved. We just all sat in a row. And we didn't even do that. We just sat. Everything else moved, but we didn't. And I thought, what a wonderful practice that is, to finally get tested, you know, and and to, and to see how well meditation can work. So I'm going to talk a little bit about meditation today and, and how to apply it to earthquakes. So there are two forms of meditation in Buddhism. One is called Samatha meditation and one is called Vipassana meditation, insight meditation. But I'm going to talk about the Samatha meditation and and the jhanas and how they can allow us to be relaxed in any situation, even a 7.1 earthquake, thankfully far enough away that we didn't have to feel the full potential of 7.1. So when you're sitting in meditation they oftentimes tell you to sit in full lotus if you can. Well, I have found most Americans have a real difficult time sitting in full lotus because we always sat in chairs and figured we never have to really practice full lotus. So there is Burmese style, which is one leg parallel to the other, one in front of the other. And then there's Taylor style, which is ankles crossed. Uh, and, and then there's kneeling style. If you have a, a bench, you can kneel and sit on the bench. And then you can sit in a chair. And, and chairs are fine. And, and the older you get, the more you realize how wonderful chairs are. So one of the people was, was sitting in a chair, uh, Friday night meditation, and she was the one that reacted the most to the earthquake because she had the higher center of gravity and everything was sort of moving for her. So she put her hand against the wall just for extra support. But the ones who were sitting on the tatami mat, on the cushions, uh, you know, were, were fine. They were stable enough to, to ride out the 20 seconds of earthquake. So when they talk about finding a stable position in your meditation practice, it does have practical value if you live in Los Angeles because it can support you during the earthquakes. So there you are, and you're sitting cross-legged or kneeling, and you're on the floor, and you've got real good contact with the earth. Because the earth isn't that far below us, you know, and, and there you're sitting and stable. And, and the thought came to me after the earthquake was, where do you go if the earth is shaking? You know, there's no, you can't run fast enough or far enough to get away from it. You know, and so you're sort of going to have to ride it out. And sometimes they say, you know, crawl under a table. Sometimes they say, get into a doorway. Sometimes they tell you to run outside. But now they've changed their mind and said, well, the the doorway isn't as stable and strong as we thought it was going to be. And if you run outside, all the stuff that's falling might get you, like broken glass or bricks or pieces of cement. So that may not work either. So sometimes you just have to sort of stay in place. And I remember back in the late 50s, early 60s, we used to have, you know, duck and cover exercises in grade school because of the Cold War and the possibility of nuclear annihilation. So they wanted all the children to be safe, so they said all you need to do is duck and cover. You go underneath your desk and put your hands over your head, and when the A-bomb goes off, you'll be fine you know thankfully we never had to test it out to see if it was true or not so it's pretty much now the same with earthquakes in Los Angeles duck and cover and go underneath and and so we were sitting there and then in going into deep states of focus and concentration and 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 the awareness of the moment it starts with applied thought and sustained thought so so we need to pick an object of meditation Whatever that is for you. Now, some people like to listen to stuff. They might have like a, a CD of meditation music. Or some people like guided meditation. And they, the person has a nice, soft voice. And they're leading you through the forest. And over there is a waterfall. And the birds are chirping over there. And your mind is creating all these images for you. And it's just a wonderful escape from everyday life. But you know what? For me, that was never meditation. That was hypnotism. And, and, and I, I just, guided meditation is low on my list of things to do. You know, um, the, the news and the politics try to guide me enough. And, and I resist that as well. So I, I don't want that. But what I do want is something that I can refer to that's happening right now in the present moment. Because the whole idea is not to be in the past or the future. The whole idea is to be here now, as Ram Das used to say. And the thing I came up with, the thing that most people encourage us to do, is watch our breath. Because our breath is always happening right now. And that sensation is beyond the concept. We don't have to visualize the breath. In fact, it's very difficult to visualize the breath if it's not 32 degrees. So you, you sort of go, okay, what does the sensation of breath feel like? And what part of the body do I want to feel it in? My diaphragm, some people say, the rising and falling of the belly is a good place to go. But I, I didn't like that either because I had too many concepts of belly and food and digestion and intestines. And I didn't want to go there. So I thought to myself, I'm going to stand guard at the tip of my nose. I'm going to stand like a sentry. And I'm going to feel the sensation going out. And I'm going to feel the sensation coming in. And that will allow me to feel something that's always happening right now. But you know what? It's never easy. We always complicate it more than it needs to be. So I said to myself, well, should I follow the in-breaths or the out-breaths? What would be the best for me? And, of course, it doesn't matter. It's Either one is fine. But I watched this samurai movie, and, and the samurai warrior, before he would run through the opponent with his sword, would always exhale because he felt that was the strongest part of the breath process. And then he'd kill the opponent. So I decided to watch the exhale because that's the strongest part of my breath and i was a samurai warrior sitting in meditation waiting for the opponent to walk through the zendo thankfully no opponents walk through the zendo except cats and i'm fine so i'm watching the out breath and then i get distracted something bothers me you know the knee or sound or the helicopter and i said to myself i got to figure out how to tether my mind to this very subtle sensation of breath. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to count one to 10, 10 to one, and use that as the tether, as the rope that ties it to the sensation of breath. And I had to resist the, the idea of adding or subtracting or dividing, but simply counting. And I had to pay enough attention not to go any higher than 10 or below one. Because if I went to 11, I wasn't practicing meditation. I was counting. And if I went to zero, I wasn't practicing meditation. So it was an easy way for me in the beginning to figure out if I was meditating or not. Because people ask me, how does it feel to meditate? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Well, how long have you been meditating? Oh, 30 years. You don't know how it feels? No, you know, it really doesn't have any specific feeling. When you're meditating, there's breath happening and there's pressure from sitting on the, on the ground and sometimes the knees hurt and sometimes the mind is agitated and sometimes you're hungry and sometimes you're not. And there's all sorts of stuff happening, but it's hard to pinpoint and say, okay, this is the feeling of meditation. This is what I'm striving for. This is what I want to do. So I tethered my breath with to numbers, and I was able to keep track, 1 to 10, 10 to 1, and now the mind started to settle. It started to be more and more relaxed. The ego, in a very gentle way, was becoming anesthetized. It was going to sleep, if you will, just for a little while. It gets nervous if you tell it to go to sleep, because then it's even more awake. It's like saying, don't think about pink elephants, and of course, that's all you think about. So, if you tell the ego not to pay attention, it's going to really pay attention to see what you're up to. So, it's starting to drift and starting, and and then there's this sort of really nice feeling of happiness. Wow, happiness. And then there's even a stronger physical feeling of pleasure. Pleasure. All from just concentrating and focusing on the present moment experience. Of your breath but in a very real way what you're letting go of is all the stuff that has happened in the past and all the stuff that will happen in the future that you're disappointed about the past and you're apprehensive about the future and now you don't have to go either place past or future now you just have to stay here and usually here is always the best place for us to be because it's the only place we can live our life We can't live our life in the future, and we can't live our life in the past. We can only live it right now, here. Okay, so there's a certain sense of happiness that occurs in your mind when you get here, when you get connected to the present moment experience of your life. There's a happiness that's connected with that. And there's also a physical pleasure that's connected with being here now. And those are really inducements to continue your meditation practice that they keep reoccurring on a regular basis and it's an incentive. You know, this is wonderful. I get to sit down. I don't have to worry about stuff. I can feel the happiness in my mind as my ego starts to become anesthetized and fall asleep and I can feel the pleasure in my body as it's becoming restful and relaxed in this sitting position that is stable, and I don't have to worry about my balance as much as I normally do. Okay, so there you are, and you're sitting, and sometimes it takes 20 minutes, and sometimes it takes 40 minutes, but there's a whole process that you have to go through, and there aren't any roadmaps because each one of us has different karma and a different lifestyle, and we have to find our own little path through all of this. So I can't tell you what it feels like. I can't tell you how to do it. But you know what? The Buddha couldn't do that either. He just told us what he did and what he experienced and how he responded and reacted to it. But one of my favorite parts about meditation is Mara. Because Mara always shows up. I don't care how long you've been practicing. But Mara is this little guy or gal that sits on your shoulder during meditation. Not heavy at all, very light. Can't even realize it's there. And Mara just whispers in your ear and tells you things that you may have forgotten. Like there's really a good movie on TV right now. Why are you sitting here doing nothing when you could be watching television? And so our job is sort of to listen to Mara but not pay attention. You know, you can't turn Mara off. You can't turn any of this stuff off if you willfully try to do it because the will is the ego and it's the ego talking to itself and so it doesn't work. But what you have to do is set up conditions necessary for not paying attention. And sometimes the stable sitting position, sometimes the sensation of breath, sometimes the counting, all those are necessary to not pay attention to Mara, who will always be there until your last moment on this earth. So there you are, and Mara now is talking to you, and you can imagine what Mara said during the earthquake. Because Mara is really sort of concerned about always being in charge doesn't want anybody else to be in charge, especially you. So Mara is sort of there, and, and so the earthquake starts, and Mara goes, you're going to die. <laughs> and, and so you're listening to Mara, and the, the whole building is sort of rolling back and forth, and you can feel the creaking of the old wood, and wondering how many walls will be cracked after it's over, and how much work you'll need to do to put it back together, and and but Mara just is going like crazy, na na. And then Mara spoke to me, and Mara said, "Maybe Isaac is getting enlightened. That's why the whole building is shaking. I'm going to have to ask Isaac after this if he 's enlightened." <laughs> but then Mara said, "You know what? This is really lasting a long time." When is it going to end? Should I run now? And it always happens that at that moment, at that fork in the road, that's the place where you either respond or you react. And I have to say, all of us sitting there on Friday night at 8.16 just responded by sitting. It was an amazing sight to see: the people lined up on the tatami mat, sitting on their cushions, cross-legged. One was kneeling, and nobody moved, except for the building, and it's going back and forth, back and forth. Wow! So maybe there is something to this meditation. Maybe meditation allows us to find ourselves in any situation and be calm and relaxed, and aware. Because the awareness becomes intensified. It doesn't go away, just because the ego is getting anesthetized. The ego is a filter. So, we're pushing the filter aside just for a few moments and getting the direct experience of our life in that moment. And so, because it's not being filtered, it's right in our face. It is strong. The sounds are sharper. The feelings are more intense. And there you are, wondering what's going to happen next. But you know what? Nothing ever happens next. Because next becomes now in the very moment. So we're going next, now, next, now, next, now. And eventually we stop saying next and come to now. And what's happening now? Well, my experience was I continued to breathe. I could feel the sensation. I didn't have vertigo. I didn't fall over or anything. I just sort of sitting there. The building was moving, but I was responding to the movement and not reacting to the movement. So I didn't feel any deep-rooted anxiety about the building is going to fall and we're all going to be crushed, and the person living on the second floor will just walk away fine and unhurt, and all of us on the first floor will be pancakes. Those thoughts really didn't come. It was just, okay, this is what is happening now. And now. And now. And now. Okay. It's okay. It feels good. I responded, the, 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 the last part of this meditation practice is not the happiness, because there wasn't much happiness in the rocking and the rolling, and, and there wasn't much pleasure in the rocking and the rolling, but there wasn't much unhappiness or pain either, but the last aspect of this meditation practice became the strongest in that moment, and that last aspect was equanimity, balance balance? How do you find balance in the earthquake? And if you heard all the people talking about their experiences on the news, some cried, some ran, some were fearful, some didn't know what to do next. But if you meditate, you know there's nothing to do next. It's not about next. It's about now. And so we sit and we sit. And most of the time, It's just as boring as you can imagine. But every once in a while in our life, if we're lucky enough to live in L.A. and be meditating when the earthquake hits, you will find that meditation has value. It has a purpose. There's a reason we do it. Because we want to find our balance in every situation we're in. We want to find our balance. And maybe being an example of balance will help others find theirs as well. We don't have to go out and profess that meditation is the way. Because most people haven't got a clue what meditation is or even what a way is, let alone the way. Because everybody has their way. But sometimes, in our way, we can incorporate things to make it even better. And that's where I find meditation to be the most useful. Now, words of warning. You sat through the earthquake. Everything was fine. You, you felt good afterwards because your meditation practice allows you to find equanimity in even the biggest disaster. But then for a couple days afterwards, because this affects everybody at a very deep level, we're talking about life and death. We're talking about the possibility of extinction, you know. And we all made it. But I find in my own life, sometimes my reactions to everyday situations are overly dramatic. And I'm sort of wondering, what, what, why am I thinking and acting this way? Because I almost died two days ago. No, it didn't feel like it. It felt like I was just sort of like, you know, riding out the storm. But but then, I, you know, even the simplest tasks, like driving down Vermont Avenue, which isn't always simple. You just see all the problems with all the traffic and all the people who can't decide whether to turn left or right. And they're blocking you. And now you get aggressive and you put the gas down to the floor and you just sort of pop through here and turn left there. And then you just go, whoa, wait a minute. Why am I driving like this? What's, I don't have to get any place in any time. I'm retired. All I do is errands every day. Not important. But I'm driving like I'm the last guy on earth that has to get someplace, you know? And I'm just sort of, whoa. So real deep down, you have been affected. Even though you sat through the earthquake it has changed the way you're going to respond to the world for a few days until you get relaxed again. And you're going to be looking around and you're going to be seeing things and people are going to be doing stuff you don't think they should be doing or saying things that aren't very skillful and it's affecting you like it hasn't ever affected you before. And that's when you have to tell yourself that, yeah, man, we just had an earthquake. So I had to reflect on myself and say, you know, this did affect me at some deep level. And my mind isn't working as it usually does. And maybe I'm being a little little too intuitive and a little less intellectual. And I'm going to have to update my intellectual so I can speak to people and understand what they're saying back to me. And then a day goes by, another day goes by. And everything starts to settle, like the muddy water in the glass. And all you gotta do is put the glass down, and all the mud settles to the bottom. And all you gotta do is just not drive any heavy machinery or buy anything really expensive for a couple days. Just let it settle. And then everything comes back into focus again, and you're fine. But all these little things, they will affect you at a very deep level. And we need to be aware of that. And I think our meditation practice allows us to have a keener sense of awareness so we can respond to this and realize it's us. It's not the world out there that's all of a sudden changed. It's our reaction to the world that's changed. And we need to get back to the response to the world.